0: Well, good morning. If you can't tell, I'm about 36 weeks. I'm going to sit down so I can breathe and make it through. The Lord's coming through. All right. So in August of 1990, two life-changing events occurred. One, I started second grade. And the other is Bath and Body Works opened its doors, y'all. It was founded in 1990. And by 1997, it had become the largest bath shop chain in America, and Business Week referred to it as the McDonald's of toiletries. Why? I mean, because they were popping up everywhere. And so by 97, my friends and I were in junior high, and we were like prime candidates for sun and raspberry, juniper breeze, country apple, name your favorite scent, you know. And, like, we had all claimed our own scent, and mine was peach nectar. And I think it would give me a headache today if I smelled it, you know, but it's retired. So, anyway, so there was a friend of mine, and her scent that she claimed was sun-ripened raspberry. And, I mean, she, like... Doused herself in the body splash, and you could smell her everywhere she went in junior high. Which, considering junior high, that's Sunripe and Raspberry's not bad for other smells there in junior high. But I mean, like in the cafeteria, in the hall, like I'm like, there she went. I knew that was her. And I mean, I couldn't think of Sunripe and Raspberry, couldn't smell it without thinking of her. And I associated the two so closely. And I'm thinking about this as we're, we're going into our passage today, going, man, what is it for you? What smells or scents are associated for you with people or experiences? You know, maybe it's like the smell of your locker room, the sweaty foot, gross smell, or gymnastics. That, that Gymnastics has a certain smell, you know? All right. Or maybe like the smell of your husband's cologne that he wore while you were dating, and it takes you back to those days. Or maybe it's the holiday, like breads and cookies and treats you only bake at Christmas time. We all have aromas or fragrances that just take us right on back to experiences or people. And today, if you're a believer in Christ, you have, your, you have an aroma. And it's a gospel aroma. And it comes from a life that is dependent upon Christ. And so I wonder if other people, how closely do they associate your life with Christ and this gospel aroma? And maybe you don't have a relationship with Christ and you're not real sure what kind of aroma you give off. Well, I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned. All right. So today we're going to learn about three aspects of being a faithful aroma of Christ. And they all start with F. You're welcome for the alliteration. We've got forgiveness faithfulness, and fragrance. And by the way, I love Bath and Body Works, not knocking it, use their hand soaps and candles. So we'll just get that out of the way. All right, so our text today is 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 5 through 17. And so far in this letter, we've seen Paul remind us that, man, God comforts us in our suffering so that we can comfort others. We've seen how our pain is not wasted. We've seen that as we depend on God, he delivers us. And last week, we learned about how the Corinthians were assuming the worst about Paul, but that he really did have a pure heart. And we learned that as believers, we have God's seal of approval. And then at the very beginning of chapter two, we saw how Paul's love for the Corinthians actually resulted in him saying some really hard things to them in what he calls the severe letter. so today we're gonna see that the gospel empowers believers. So the gospel empowers believers to forgive, to be faithful, and to be fragrant. So our first section is about the gospel empowering believers to forgive. And this is verses five through 11. And here we learn about forgiving a sinner. And we're gonna see that forgiveness shows love, obedience, and awareness. So in verses five through eight, Paul shows us that forgiveness is a way to love. And so he acknowledges that there was a sin committed. There's a sinner. And he acknowledges that there was pain caused. In verse five, he says, if anyone has caused pain or grief, so he's acknowledging, hey, there's been hurt. And then he acknowledges that there was a punishment that followed. In verse six, he says, this punishment by the majority is enough. And so we think this was some form of church discipline that had happened. So Paul isn't sweeping what happened under the rug, but he is addressing this and he's saying, okay, enough. It is time to forgive, to comfort and to love. Verse seven, he says, turn to forgive and comfort him. And then in verse eight, reaffirm your love for him. And I love one commentator pointed out that Paul avoids naming the culprit probably out of consideration for this man's feelings. So even in his urging them to forgive and show love, Paul himself is showing love. So Paul says here to forgive. So let's take a minute and push pause and talk about biblical forgiveness. The Bible says in Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, while it may seem easier to forgive a small wound and harder to forgive somebody who wounds us deeply or repeatedly, it's when we remember that in Christ we ourselves are forgiven that we're able to forgive others, that Jesus' blood is enough for our sin and the sins committed against us. And as you saw in your lesson, forgiveness does not mean that we excuse someone's sin or that we deny our own pain, but rather that we entrust our demand for justice to God through Christ. Forgiveness is between you and God, and it doesn't depend on your offender's willingness to change or repay you. And forgiveness frees you to love others as Christ loved them. And there are some really heavy things in this room that some of you are carrying. And I want you to hear today that God sees you and he loves you and he has forgiven you. And because of that, his gospel through you, it empowers you to forgive others. Now, in verses nine through 10, Paul reminds us that forgiveness is actually an act of obedience. In verse nine, he says, I wrote to know whether you're obedient in everything and so Paul's urging them to remember, hey, you've been forgiven in Christ and now that is why you can extend forgiveness to others. And if you look at some of uh, Paul's other letters in the Bible in Uh, Colossians, he writes and he says, hey, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then to uh, the Ephesians, he says, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And so this is a theme that we see. And so this to me says, hey, this is not just a command for the Corinthians, like Corinthians, be obedient and forgive. This is for all believers. And when you think about how, when we think about like Christ's forgiveness of us, how could we Like withhold the mercy and grace that we've received, but we do, we withhold it. And then in verse 11, we see that forgiveness shows us awareness of Satan's schemes. It says in verse 11, we're not unaware of his designs or schemes. So we know that Satan is not victorious in the end. We know that he cannot rob us of our relationship with God, but he loves to make believers ineffective and unproductive for God's kingdom work. And what better way to do that than destroy unity among brothers and sisters, especially within the church. And he may do that through encouraging, hey, hold this grudge or fueling pride or tempting us to think it's okay to withhold forgiveness. And so Paul here is talking about the disruption of unity within the Corinthian church and one of its members. But does this not translate to any relationship? Maybe your family community group, marriage. Before we got married, my husband and I appropriately shared about our pasts. And because he had stumbled in an area of purity in a way that I hadn't, I felt entitled actually to be slow to forgive him or just withhold forgiveness. And as I processed this, I realized that my own sin of pride and self-righteousness were at play here. And when I say self-righteousness, I mean, I thought I was like better Or somehow I could be good enough for God on my own or morally superior because I hadn't sinned in the same way. But self-righteousness in and of itself is a sin to God. And my self-righteousness, I realized for the first time, it had convinced me that I thought because I hadn't stumbled in a certain way, I deserved someone who hadn't either. And what I was missing is that my sin deserves what all sin deserves, death. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But I was over here assigning value to sin based on my own human standards, totally missing. Hey, God is the only one who assigns value to sin. He's perfect and holy and sin is sin is sin. My husband had repented. He had turned away from his sin. He had grieved it. And I was over here thinking, I don't know, mine's not that bad. Maybe I'm going to withhold forgiveness. But praise God for not giving up on me. God changed my heart. He showed me my own depravity, my own wickedness, my own sin, and his generous forgiveness of me. And the more I sat in this, the more my respect for my husband grew, just admiring his humility and his desire to confess and renounce, to share the hard stuff and then turn away from that. We had both been in need of forgiveness, but now I could see my part. And it's crazy, like Satan was already trying to attack our unity and our oneness in marriage before we had even tied the knot. And it was when I realized how much Christ had forgiven me from that I realized withholding forgiveness really isn't even a thing. It's not an option for me as a believer. So forgiveness shows love, obedience and awareness. And I wonder today, have you received Christ's forgiveness? If this is what's supposed to fuel our forgiveness of others, have you even received it? Do you know the gospel about how God is holy and perfect and he can't be around sin? And the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory and that the consequence for our sin or the punishment or the payment, the wages of our sin is death. And because God is 100% just, Someone has to die for sin. His perfect justice demands payment. But because he's also 100% loving, he himself sent his very own son to be that exact payment. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And that is what makes him the only one who can actually pay and fulfill the cost of our sin. And he did it. He died on the cross for you and for me out of his great love for us. And this is the gospel. And when you choose to actually believe this, there's a difference between like knowing this and going, yeah, yeah, I know, I know Jesus died for me and that whole thing. But when you choose to actually believe it in your heart, that is when your relationship with God is restored. And that is the gospel. And if you have questions about that, that is like the number one conversation that we would love to have with you because it is the most important decision you'll ever make. Please come find someone if you wanna talk more about that. Now, Paul was writing because the Corinthians were withholding forgiveness. So the hard question for us today is, who are you withholding forgiveness from? Is it a drunk driver who injured or killed a family member? Or maybe it's a kiddo who bullies your kid. Maybe you have trouble forgiving other kids who have been mean to your own children. Or maybe it's a person who abused you years ago and you haven't even ever told anybody about it. And I can't pretend to know what you're going through, but I do know Christ and I know that he can empower you, his gospel, his love to forgive. The gospel empowered the Corinthians to forgive and the gospel empowers believers to forgive today. All right, in our next section, verses 12 through 13, we learn about Paul's travel plans. And so Paul, it tells us he heads to Troas, verse 12 says why, to preach the gospel of Christ. And so we see him faithfully take the message of the gospel to where he sees an open door. Verse 12, it says that a door was open for me in the Lord. And so even though there's a door open for him there, verse 13 says something interesting. It says his spirit was not at rest. So why not? Well, Paul was on the lookout. He was looking for Titus. Why was he looking for Titus? Well, Titus had delivered the severe letter that we learned about last week to the Corinthians. And Paul was concerned about how he wanted to know how the Corinthians responded. He was concerned for Titus. And so that's why his spirit was not at rest about being in Troas. So he leaves. And so he headed to Troas, planning to be faithful, to take the gospel to the many people there but then he leaves to follow up with one, the Corinthians. And when I first read these verses, I was kind of like, what does this really have to do with anything? Uh, But then as I spent more time there, I started seeing, man, his faithfulness is a big deal. He was faithful to follow God and the open door he had to take the gospel to the many. And then he was faithful to be rerouted by God and to follow up with one. And these are people whom he already had a relationship with even though it meant a change in his plans. And so this kind of brought to mind the image of the shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one. And I used to be a school counselor a long time ago, and then God rerouted my plans, and I ended up working here, like Gigi told you earlier, um, at Watermark. And I was the On Your Mark coordinator, so I got to be part of the kids team. And I got the awesome privilege of teaching about 250 kids every single Sunday, right over here in this part of the room. And so now God has rerouted me again, and I am a stay-at-home mom, and I have one. So 250 to one, soon to be two. And it would be really easy for me to think, well, I can't really be as faithful anymore or as impactful for the kingdom, or I'm not really making that much of a difference now because I'm not around as many people on a consistent basis. and we'll have as many like, you know, kids around. And that would just be a lie if I believed that because God can use me wherever I am. And he can use you wherever you are, whether your opportunity right now is to the 99 or to the one. And so thinking about that, where is God asking you to be faithful as a believer? Is it in your work, to be bold in your workplace or to be content as a stay at home mom? Or maybe is it to be a consistent light in volunteer opportunities, whether at your kid's school or in your community? Or is it to be selfless and caring for an aging parent? And are you being faithful where God has you, whether it's to the 99 or the one? Or are you like me tempted to be discontent and compare and look around and think the grass is greener on the other side? And then what relationships that are already in your life, like the Corinthians were a relationship already in Paul's life. What relationships that are already in your life do you need to ask God for intentionality and faithfulness to pursue? The gospel empowered Paul to be faithful, and the gospel empowers believers to be faithful. The gospel empowers us. So we've seen how the gospel empowers believers to forgive, And to be faithful. And now we'll see in the last section, 14 through 17, about how the gospel empowers us to be fragrant. We are the aroma of Christ. And so here we see that in Christ, we are triumphant, fragrant, and sufficient. And so words that stood out to me as I was reading through this section were always triumphant, fragrance, aroma. And so what is Paul saying here? Well, in verse uh, 14, Paul says that God in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So let's take a closer look at what this whole triumphal procession thing actually is. And so this was a parade, but not just any parade. Okay, it was like bigger than your neighborhood, 4th of July parade. Do you have those where they're like kind of dinky, but real cute? OK, um, bigger than a college homecoming parade, even bigger than the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade, which is coming soon. And I can't wait. I love that thing. All right. But this was the Roman triumph. This was like a huge victory parade. And it could be a once in a lifetime opportunity for a citizen of Rome to see. So who was involved? Well, the general who had been victorious. The, the victorious army got to march in the parade. But also all of the defeated enemy captives were paraded through the streets of Rome. And all the pomp and circumstance Rome could muster went into putting on one of these parades. Now there was an aroma that came along with these parades and it came from the flower petals that were thrown and from incense that was burned. And so this is kind of like what Paul is saying, the nod to how through through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, this aroma. And so this very same aroma signaled two very different things to two very different groups of people. And so to one group, the citizens of Rome and the victorious army, this aroma signaled victory or life. Like we won, we did it, we conquered. And this very same aroma to the enemy captives signaled impending death because they would be marched often to wait and then be executed. And so this is just like how Paul says in verses 15 through 16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And so who's who, who can be represented here? So God is represented by Caesar and Christ is represented by the Roman general, the victorious general. And then Paul puts himself in an interesting place in this parade. He puts himself with the enemy captives, the captives that have been defeated and conquered, being marched to death. And this is Paul saying, hey, I know that my life is Christ's. And if you think about it, Captives, actually, they bring glory to the the general who conquered them in the same way that Paul's life was bringing glory through his suffering to Christ, who had conquered him on the Damascus road. And so where would we be in this Roman triumph parade? Well, the honored general's sons would walk behind him in the parade, sharing in their father's victory. And that is where we are. We are right there, right behind Christ, sharing in his victory. And there's a quote from Warren Wiersbe, and he says, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. Because when we share the gospel and live out the gospel, we're triumphant because the gospel itself is triumphant. So in Christ, we are triumphant. Now, people are going to respond to this gospel aroma that we give off as believers in very different ways. To people who are saved or who are also in Christ, this is a fragrance of life. It smells good. Like spiced apple cider that you leave on your stove. You know, people come over, they're like, mmm, yum. But to people who are not saved, who reject Christ, we stink like death to death, the very same aroma. This reminds me, death, the smell of a dirty diaper rotting in an outdoor Texas heat trash can in 100 degrees. I mean, y'all, gross, Okay. But that is like, hey, to people who don't believe, they don't want it. So regardless of how others respond to our gospel aroma, we're triumphant because our message is the gospel and the gospel is triumphant. And then something I need to do a better job of remembering is that I can trust God with how others respond when I live out the gospel and I can trust him to just help me be faithful. I'm not responsible for how others respond, but I am responsible to be faithful. So in Christ, we are fragrant. And then at the end of verse 16, Paul asked, who is sufficient for these things? Who is equal for this awesome task of sharing the gospel? As Matthew Henry said of sharing the gospel, it is a work of such vast importance because of so great a consequence. Well, on their own, no one, no one is sufficient, but in Christ we are, we are sufficient because we are in Christ and Christ is sufficient. And then Paul closes this section reminding the Corinthians of his sincerity and his mission. He says in verse 17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. And so peddlers in Paul's day would take mixed wine and they would water it down and then they would sell it for like high dollar wine. And so Paul is saying, hey, I'm not, meddling in God's word. I'm not watering it down. I'm not mixing in my own opinions and I'm not selling God's word for profit. His motives are pure and ours should be too. And the way that we treat God's word should be too. We should not water it down or mix in our own opinions or try to sell it off. So I think it's interesting to see how people respond to a gospel aroma, just kind of when you're out and about. And in my experience, I feel like Sometimes it blossoms into a sweet conversation, but for me, often, more times than not, it kind of goes... Um, And so, when I get my nails done, I try to share the gospel with the person that I'm sitting across from for about an hour. And around Christmas time, there's a great opportunity there because it's Christmas and we know Jesus is the reason for the season. So you have an in, okay, of just being like, hey, do you celebrate Christmas? Well, can I tell you why I celebrate it? You know, like that's when Christ came to earth and to live this perfect life. And I needed him to do that because I'm a sinner and He said, you know. So I go through this whole thing last Christmas and I get, do you have kids? I'm like, okay, well, okay, I was faithful and we're gonna trust God with that result, you know? Um, But then speaking of kids, I am, you know, have one in here and then I have an 18 month old. And so when I'm out and about with her and this one, I get a lot of like nervous laughter when they find out how close they'll be and kind of like, oh, okay, you know. But it's a great opportunity to just be like, man, we are so grateful. We are trusting God's plan for our family. We're so thankful. These kids are a gift from the Lord. And then the sweet woman who responds with, they are, honey, they are precious in his sight. And so there's life to life right there. So the gospel empowers us. We're fragrant and in Christ, we're triumphant. And fragrant and sufficient. And so if the gospel is always triumphant and therefore you're triumphant when you share it, what holds you back from sharing it? Maybe it's fear of rejection. I feel like this one gets me. And I forget, man, in Christ, I'm triumphant no matter how they respond. I just need to be faithful. Or maybe it's not, you're like afraid you won't know how to answer them back if they ask you really tough questions. Well, as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And also, we have great resources here. Take advantage of the equipping classes. They're online. Real Truth Real Quick has tons of videos on hard questions. Or maybe you're still not sure what you actually believe about the gospel. And that's okay. We have great questions on Monday nights. Come join us. Would you dare to ask God to put you in a place where there's no fragrance or aroma of Christ? and then ask him for boldness to be that aroma, that faithful fragrance, even around people who may think you stink? And do you feel like you have to get your life together before you can share Christ? Or do you share out of your vulnerability and weakness, which actually points to Christ's sufficiency all the more? The gospel empowered Paul and the Corinthians to be fragrant, and the gospel empowers us as believers. The gospel empowers us to be fragrant. Now, I was studying this text and thinking about the whole, like, we're the aroma of Christ. My first thought was actually, that means, like, when we share the gospel point by point, whole Romans road, bridge illustration, and at the end, they say, I want to pray and receive Christ, right? And then I'm like, oh, no, this, this isn't good. I don't, that doesn't happen for me often. But then I realized, you know, like, the aroma of Christ, this fragrance, that is how we live day by day. And so— I wanted to close today by sharing with you about some friends in my life who are gospel aroma, who I so closely associate with the gospel that I can't think of one without the other. Kind of like my sun-ripened raspberry friend in junior high, but this is way better. So I think of my friend Amy, and she has five kids, y'all. And she considers them her primary area of discipleship. She is constantly looking not only to her own interest but also to the interest of others. When there are decisions to be made, maybe about school or extracurricular activities, I mean, she is on her knees asking God for wisdom, and then she follows through. Whether that's like a scary, unknown thing that she feels like he's leading her to do or something that goes against culture, she's obedient. And she seeks out time with other believers. She spends time in God's word. She serves in her local church. I'm just so encouraged by her. And we don't live in the same city, but I tell her often, man, you encourage me from far away because I know you're getting after it. Or my friend Katie, she is a student of God's word and she studies and shares what she learns in a way that's accessible and humble and relatable. And God's word truly is a lamp to her feet and a light for her path. It guides her as she lovingly enters into difficult conversations, not to win or to be heard, but because she truly cares about somebody knowing Jesus more. She's been such a model for me to see what it looks like to not just know God's word, but actually apply it to life. And then I think of my friend, Kristen, who is often the only gospel aroma in her workplace but she does not shrink back. Instead, she boldly asks God every day, God, show me yourself and give me an opportunity to make you known. And through Christ, she lives a life that is worthy of the manner of the gospel of Christ so that when he does give her opportunities, her life matches up with what she says she believes. Her belief truly does inform her behavior and she encourages me to be more bold in my own faith. So these friends point me to Christ. But who are your people? Who is the aroma of Christ to you? And will you encourage them about that today? And then who has God put you around that you're the aroma of Christ to them? And will you trust him to help you be a faithful fragrance? The gospel empowers believers. The gospel empowers believers to be forgiving and faithful and fragrant. And so next time you pass by Bath & Body Works, Because you know you will at the mall soon. Or light your fall candle or like bake pumpkin bread. Remember that aroma, those aromas you smell, that is you. You are an aroma. You're the aroma of Christ. And as you move through this life, you're triumphant. No matter how people respond to your message, our call is to be faithful and let God do the rest. Because the gospel empowers us as believers. And so we're going to pray. And then Gigi's going to come up with a quick announcement. God, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that in you, we are sufficient because you are sufficient. And so I ask that you will help us be bold to live in a way that points back to Christ and to trust you with how people respond and just help us be faithful fragrances. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.